Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to uh, John chapter 16. John chapter 16, we're going to read uh, verses 16 down to 24 and also consider uh, those same verses. Before we do so, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you've given us your word, but we know that unless your Holy Spirit works, what we are about to do will be uh, simply a dead exercise. Unless your Spirit works through the word, no one will be brought to faith. Dead hearts won't be made alive, and we as your people will not be edified and grown. And so we have just confessed earlier that we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we, we do. And so we ask that you'll use him and that you'll pour him out richly into our lives uh, to teach us and to grow us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. All right, John 16 at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives uh, this morning. So, beloved, I want to just kind of walk us through here uh, the, the main part of the introduction, and then we'll get to uh, uh, a few uh, points. The first part I want us to notice is, Verses 20 and 22, there's, there's a theme going on here. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It's sort of the main theme that's going on here. Jesus is telling his disciples as he's getting ready to leave them, look, you're going to be sorrowful. There's going to be a period of grief, but that grief will end in joy. So it'll be difficult, sorrowful, but it will end well. And that's the theme of what's going on in this passage here. What's striking is the tenderness of Jesus Christ in this passage for his disciples. Now, he's about to step into a world that will take him beyond the limits. He's about ready to step into the world of crucifixion, all the agony. Again, this is Thursday night. He's just about to be arrested, just about to go through all those trials, mocked, flogged. He knows this is coming. And worse yet, he's about ready to be put on the cross where his own father will forsake him as he's making payment for our sins. He's about ready to go through that. And where is his mind now? Comforting his disciples. So tender, so kind. He, we, we would argue he has a plate full. If, if Jesus was preoccupied, everyone would understand with, with his suffering, if he was preoccupied with that. But here he is ministering to his disciples 
as he's about ready to get thrown into the deep end. And he knows the value of joy so much that he wants his disciples to have it. He's telling his disciples, look, you're going to be sorrow for a while, but it will turn into joy. And it concludes with saying, hey, I want your joy to be full. This is incredible. The Lord doesn't call us into a relationship with himself to say, hey, come, come follow me and be miserable. <laughs> hey, come follow me and have the worst life you can possibly have here and now. He wants his disciples, no matter the circumstances, to have joy. Again, tremendously tender and tremendously kind. And Jesus, of all people, knows the value of joy. How do we know that? Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ knows, beloved, the value of joy, the importance of joy. What carried him through the cross? What carried him through all the shame? Now, we like to talk about shame, but you want to talk about shame. You're the second person of the Trinity. You've already come all the way down here to take on the skin of human beings who rebelled against you. You don't have any sin, but you're treated like you're a sinner. Your own creation doesn't know who you are. Your own people reject you and don't know who you are. And the end result of all this is that they actually put you on a cross between two criminals after mocking you and flogging you. And then they mock you while you're up there on the cross. <laughs> That's shame. Crucified outside the gates as one who's unclean. What drove him through all that? What drove him to do this for us, beloved? What drove him? What, what, what had he seen? The joy that was set before him. What's the joy? A people redeemed. His father glorified. Joy drove Jesus Christ through this hard, sorrowful, remember my heart is my soul is troubled even unto death. What drove Jesus Christ through that was the joy that he knew was coming in the morning, right? Sorrow tarries for a night, weeping tarries for a night, joy comes in the morning. He knew it would end in joy, but he just has to get through it. He has to walk through it. So beloved, what we're seeing is that The future joy that Christ knew was coming enabled him to walk and so live that we might be saved and redeemed. And what I want us to notice uh, as we uh, walk through this is uh, the language of verses 20 and 22. I want us to take a look at it because I think it's uh, uh, helpful. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to say this. Um, Let me just make this uh, second point of the introduction. So first point is that uh, Jesus is tender. The second point is that sorrow is temporary. Take a look at verses 21 down to 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The purpose of the illustration is fairly straightforward, right? Now, for those of you who have been at a birth, you know, the guys do nothing, but for the woman, it's very painful, right? Very painful. Uh, epidural painful, screaming painful, uh, a lot of agony and a lot of pain. But what happens after the baby's born, and if you put that baby on the mother's uh, uh, a chest, to color with that baby, what happens? All that pain is just kind of forgotten. Now, they're still hurting and in pain, of course, right? But for joy that they're enjoying now, the pain's like a secondary thing. Like, oh, I, that's not even a thought in my mind right now. This is just so wonderful and incredible. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. 
The pain and the sorrow that we undergo in this life is temporary, and it will issue forth into joy eventually. Again, Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, having said all this, the question which puzzled the disciples still questions us down to this day. Did you catch all the confusion at the beginning of the passage, verses 16 through 18? A little while you will see me, no longer again, a little while you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he was talking about. <laughs> Down to this day, a lot of commentators, most commentators still don't know what he's talking about. And I'm included <laughs> among them. I came across studying uh, this, a sermon by James Montgomery Boyce, in which he uh, kind of laid out uh, a three-step way to, to interpret this. And instead of narrowing it down to one interpretation, he said actually all three have their place. And so we're going to kind of follow uh, his outline there. And the first uh, thing that I want us to uh, take a look at regarding the little while will be gone, and then the, and you'll have sorrow, and a little while later you'll see me again and you'll have joy, has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. So start there. So what does he mean by a little while and you will see me no longer? He's going to die and go to the grave. And what does he mean by, and then a little while you're going to see me, not joy, his resurrection. So that's the first uh, thing that he could be referring to. When Jesus Christ was heading to the cross between now and when he actually breathes his last, the disciples were sorrowful. They're already starting to be troubled and they make their troubles known. We've looked at that in the previous months. It's difficult to have followed Jesus and seen all of his miracles and his teaching for three years on this incredibly public stage, and now to have him say, look, I'm going away. Well, Lord, we left our callings as fishermen, as tax collectors. We, we left everything behind. What do you mean you're going away? What do we do now? Do we just go back to our callings? Do we just go fish again? Should I you know, knock on the door of the Roman Empire and say, hey, I want to collect taxes again? What are we supposed to do? So they're in confusion, they're hurting, and Jesus knows it, and they will have sorrow until the day of resurrection comes. In fact, you can almost, the sorrow is almost palpable, the grief in John 20, verse 19, where we're told the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. That's where they found the disciples after the resurrection. They had locked the doors because they were afraid of the Jews. If you kill Jesus, you kill his followers too, right? They're coming after us next. This is a thought process. Sorrowful, difficult, hard. And then joy came. And we're told in the next verse, John 20, 20, after Jesus revealed himself, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Sorrow that turned into joy. So that's the first meaning for the disciples that were around him. Now, let me just pause for a moment and kind of walk us into this before we move on to the, the, the second timeline. It's possible to live a very discouraged Christian life because we've forgotten that the Jesus who died in our place and bore God's wrath in our place has risen. That he's living and resurrected, ascended, and he's on high, and he is in charge. And he's in charge of the whole world. He reigns. It's easy to lose track of that, beloved. Think, oh, Jesus died for me. Yes, he did die for me. And oh, he's weak and helpless and and, uh, you know, he's uh, kind of asking for pity in the world. He's a victim. You know, Jesus Christ came into this world weak and helpless, but he left uh, on high. He left victorious. 
He had gone all the way to the grave. He was in our place and he accomplished all that and he accomplished it. And the resurrection now, we look back on the cross and we're usually celebratory, right? The disciples are pretty sad. They don't know what's coming next or they, they haven't processed it. They haven't figured it out even though Jesus told them. We look back on the cross and I hope we see victory. I hope we look back on what Jesus did and don't think, oh, that was the world taking advantage of Jesus, poor Jesus. No, that was God the Father according to his decree and Jesus Christ in obedience to that decree, systematically winning the victory over sin and death through weakness. It was God spitting in the devil's face as it were saying, oh, you think you got me, huh? <laughs> you have no idea. Oh, you think that by putting my son on the cross and moving Judas to do this and the Jews to do this and the Romans to do this, to get him crucified between two criminals, all that shame and mockery, you think that by doing that, you've won devil. Okay, well, you've got another guest coming because on the third day we have resurrection, which communicates back to the crucifixion, God orchestrated the whole thing in order to defeat the devil, in order to gain victory for his people over sin and death by satisfying his wrath. So it's possible to so live in the Christian life as to say, woe is me. I serve a savior who's just dead, who went to the cross for me, he's not alive. And to live so discouraged and sorrowful over that, that we never see the hope of our life. The hope of it, Jesus lives, he's living in me now. We serve a risen savior who indeed did go to the cross for me and then rose again so that my old person could be dealt with and I could have newness of life now. So let me ask you how that is for you, even as I ask myself. As we look at our lives, are we continually sorrowful like the disciples were, almost living as if there was no resurrection? Or are we living in this incredible resurrection joy, the, the reality of Easter, where Jesus died in our place and rose again as one package and, and, and he did this for us because we should have that joy about us as believers because Jesus did come out of the tomb. The second sort of timeline that Jesus could be referring to has to do with the joy of Pentecost. So the little while where he's gonna be gone is gonna be his ascending into heaven. He's no longer with the disciples. He's going back to the Father, which is what he's been talking to them about earlier in the chapter and also in chapter 14. So that's the going away. And then in the little while, you're going to see me. But it's not seeing him personally. It's seeing the comfort of the one who's going to come in Jesus' name and minister Christ to them. And so that's the second sort of timeline. And the reason a lot of people think this is it is because if you look at uh, verse 17 of the passage, John 16, 17. He says, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will see me and again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, catch that language, because I'm going to the Father. Back up to verse 10 of chapter 16 and he says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer in the context of talking about the coming Holy Spirit. So people view this language of, a little while he's gone, but a little while he's coming back as a reference to his ascension and then pouring out the Holy Spirit because he's using the same language in 17 that he used back in verse 10 when he was talking about that. So this, there'll be one objection to this view and that objection is this. 
we're told that in a little while, Jesus said, in a little while, you will see me. But again, they're not going to see him after his ascension. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, they don't see him. Our, Paul did on the road to Damascus, I get that. But, but that's not what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is seen, though, when in John 16, 14, he says this about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's how Jesus is seen. And that's what he means by that in this context. The disciples will see Jesus more clearly than they ever had when the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens the word to their eyes and teaches them things that they don't yet know. So the sorrow came when the disciples were all together in one place, Acts 2. They're part of kind of a hopeless cause. They're told to wait in Jerusalem for power to come. The Holy Spirit, I don't know what this means. And they're all kind of banded together, 100, 200 of them or so. Uh, some, in, some in that room, some scattered elsewhere. And they're just sitting there and they're waiting. Sorrow, grief, what's our purpose? What are we doing here? And then what happens? Pentecost, joy. A massive wind comes blowing through there. Fire, tongues as a fire. Languages that are just lighting up. People speaking languages and other people from all over the world. Hey, hey, they're... All of a sudden, they're speaking my language. I can understand this. The Holy Spirit comes, and they're emboldened, and they have this joy of purpose now. Hey, here we are. The Lord's shown up again. He's given us His Spirit. We're bold. We're going to go spread the gospel, and the church life has grown here. Believers are fellowshipping. Peter gets up and preaches, and thousands come to faith. It's just incredible joy, beloved, when the church sees the ministry of Jesus continuing. And I want us to think about this in our context today because we're not waiting for Pentecost anymore. But Jesus is still ascended. And the way that we see him is still through the same means, the Holy Spirit working through the word. That's the way that the disciples originally experienced joy. It's still the same way that we experience that joy too. Jesus is going to come and stand right in front of us like on a Sunday morning in worship and say, hey, here I am. You can see me physically. No, he's ascended into heaven. His body is out there somewhere. How do we see him? In the word, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible in this life to find ourselves way removed from Jesus, isn't it? Like the disciples, what are we doing? What's our purpose? What are we doing here? Are we following the right Savior and Lord? Is he near me? Is he even around? What's going on? What am I doing here? And then we turn to the word and what takes place. The spirit resonates with our hearts, teaches our hearts, communicate with our hearts through the word. Teaches us indeed the Lord is with us. He does care about us. We do have a mission. We do have a purpose. And he brings to life the word. And so we go from sorrowful to joyful just by fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you know, having days where everything is just sort of empty, you're more behinder at the end of the day than you were at the beginning of the day. In fact, it would have been more productive for your life and family if you had not gotten out of bed that morning, <laughs> because when you went to bed at night, you were just miles behind. <laughs> would have been better just to stay at home. And one of those days where it seems like the Lord's against you and you don't know what you're doing in this world and everything you put your hand to, maybe you just got fired or relationships aren't going like you wanted them to go. Everything's south and life is filled with sorrow, legitimately, just sorrowful. Lord, I, I don't know what's going on, but whether it's crying or weeping on the inside. And then you sit down with 
the Lord and read his word and pray to him. And you discover, you told me this is what the Christian life is like, Lord. That there's going to be thorns and thistles borne out by my work. That I'll work hard and it will produce weeds. And that when I work, it's going to take sweat. And that life is filled with sorrow and trials and tribulations. You told me that, Lord, that, 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 that I'm experiencing that today in a powerful way. But you are with me and you are for me and you have forgiven all my sins. And you are near unto me in this time. And I'm just so thankful for it. And in the midst of a melting pot of misery, your sorrow turns to joy just through fellowship with the Lord, through his, his word, by his Holy Spirit. You can talk personal devotions. You can talk going to wor worship and church on Sunday. You can talk, to, it might be talking with another believer, fellowshipping, whatever the case may be. But in the midst of a horrible day, a horrible week, a horrible month, a horrible year, all of a sudden the sorrow turns to joy because we're reminded of something. The Holy Spirit's ministering to our hearts through the word again. Tremendous. So that's the second sort of timeline that can be uh, pulled out of this passage and interpreted uh, that way. So uh, let me just mention this briefly. If we find ourselves in that spot, uh, I can't encourage us enough. Uh, I need this as much as anyone does to just sit down and spend time with the Lord. Look, it's possible there is enough wrong with life in this fallen world as a believer to go through this life absolutely miserable and sorrowful. And Jesus doesn't want that for us. If he did, he would not have pulled his disciples aside to teach them this. Your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Now, sorrow is legitimate. We will have sorrow, and the Lord knows it. But he doesn't want us sitting there and staying in there. He wants us to come to him in fellowship, read about him in his words, study him, pray to him, cry out to him. And that brings joy, beloved. It brings joy knowing that he's in charge and he still cares for us, even when everything's going south. And then thirdly, the joy of heaven. That's the third sort of timeline. So the sense of the words being gone a little while means ascended and remaining ascended. And post-Pentecost, we still have sorrow in this life. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And the joy will come when Jesus comes again to bring the new heavens and the new earth on the last day. So the sorrow then, the timeline for sorrow where he's gone a little while will be from his ascension all the way till he comes again. And the time of joy will be when we see him again. And a passage like Romans 8.18 bears this out. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is Paul saying? He's saying something pretty astonishing. He's saying that in the present age, which is between now and Christ comes again, there will be a lot of what? Sorrow a lot of pain in the lives of believers. He's writing to Christians. Well, it's not something we really like to hear. At least if you're like me, you don't want to hear that. It'd be nice to have a lot of fun and joy and happiness before we get to heaven here. And indeed, there is plenty of that in life. There's also going to be lots of sorrows. But Paul says regarding the sorrow turning into joy, that the joy must be so immense. It must be so great, so profound that when we get there, we'll look back on our present sufferings and say, you know what? On account of how great this joy is and how great it is what God's revealed to us, 
that suffering was as nothing, almost as just complete. You can't even compare the two. Just like a mother after giving birth with that child in her arms, can't really even compare the two. The pain, wow. But the joy, way bigger wow. Beloved, when Jesus Christ comes again, we're going to look back on our lives. And we're going to look at all the suffering we had to go through. It's a lot. I'm sure we all know Christians. Maybe we are those believers who go through. It's like one trial after the next, after the next, after the next. And it is just hard. Everyone has a cross to bear. Some people have bigger crosses to bear. And we look at this and say, what is going on, Lord? He's got his purposes. He's working things out for his glory and for our good in every one of our lives. So we're going to look back on all of this, beloved. And we're going to say it was as almost nothing. Look at what he's brought us to. And so we have that to look forward to, that joy. That no matter the worst day in life, it will end in joy when we get to heaven. This can help in perspective. I remember um, in track and field at Iowa State for like the first two weeks, the coaches would drive you into the ground and then they'd step on your head <laughs> and then they would uh, just torture for five or six hours a day, lifting weights, running, sprinting, jumping rope, throwing, do it all over again. That's just day one. By day two, you're still going, but you're losing motivation. By day three, your muscles feel like concrete bricks, inflexible and about ready to explode if you even get out of bed. And everybody knows it takes about two weeks. It's two weeks of just hard, miserable pain every day, and you have to work through it. You have more lactic acid in your muscles than there are water in the ocean. It just feels miserable, but you have to do it. And if you cheat your way out of it, if you, if you take a cheat day, a, a couple days off until the coach you're sick when you're really not, you'll prolong the two weeks. It'll turn into months. You just have to go through the process of your body getting used to this. Beloved, that's a, a portrait of the Christian life. After two weeks, you've, you're still miserable, but at least you can function. And there, there's joy. You're, you're, you're used to it. Your body's physically used to it. Beloved, in the Christian life, there's, there's sorrow over and over and over again. Constant sorrow but the Lord gives us ways to work through it and ways to even have joy in the midst of the sorrow. He loves us this much. He wants us so encouraged, even if there's a tear in our eye. So hopeful, even if the situation around us from a worldly perspective is hopeless. He wants us to be a people that are totally different because he loves us and he cares for us. And our Lord Jesus, maybe, maybe sometimes we feel like we're at the bottom. Here's the bottom. Jesus Christ goes all the way down to the cross, all the way down under wrath. And what he found out there was no mercy, none. Stood in our place and the father, as it were, said, there will be no mercy. If you say stop, I'm not stopping. You will be there until every last drop of my wrath has been poured out against the sins of my people. And you're the one who's going to pay for it. There will be no stopping. Jesus Christ knows what sorrow is, beloved. Sorrow that you and I will never have to see as Christians. No Christian will ever have to meet that eternal torment against our soul from a God who says the time for grace is over. It's just strict justice. So he's been to the bottom and joy drove him through it. The joy of saving you. The joy of saving believers all over the world. Now that's incredible love. And he's done that for you and me. So when we walk through sorrow, we got to put this in perspective. 
Our sorrow isn't like that. Praise the Lord, it's not. It never will be. And whatever sorrow we walk through will soon turn into joy. And if there's any who don't know the Lord, just a quick word. This life is filled with sorrow. There is no joy outside of Christ, none. You can fake it. You can pretend there is. You can paint a smile on your face. You can convince yourself this is awesome, but it's not. And you know it, or you'll discover that's the case. And after this life ends, it'll go from this sorrow to infinitely worse, unless you know Jesus. So I encourage you to believe in Jesus and be saved and to discover joy in him. Let's pray.